So on today's episode, we are talking all things boobs. Joining us all the way from Melbourne, we have Dr. Kim Taylor and Dr. Richard Bloom from Replastic Surgery. Dr. Kim Taylor is a highly awarded plastic and reconstructive surgeon. Her main areas of expertise are in breast augmentation and body plastic surgery, with a passion to help women see the potential in their bodies through working to achieve their desired results. Dr. Richard Bloom is a very experienced plastic surgeon who has performed over 4,000 breast augmentation and tummy procedures. Again, he is recognized for his outstanding surgical achievements and has even played a significant role in training the new generation of plastic surgeons. We are very lucky to have these two breast experts answering all of our booby questions today, so let's dive right in. So welcome to Cosmetics, the number one destination for all things cosmetic enhancement, skincare and beauty. You're joined as always by aspiring beauty gurus, Ella James and Caitlin Gregg. After today, though, I hope we can call ourselves breast gurus. <laughs> so without giving too much away, a big warm welcome to Dr. Richard Bloom and Dr. Kim Taylor from Replastic Surgery in Melbourne. Thank you for joining us. Morning, Caitlin and Ella. Good morning. Thanks so much for having us on today. So it may seem like Getty and Kardashian tush is what's trending right now, but a perky pair of boobs is far from out of style. In fact, globally, breast augmentation is the most common plastic surgery procedure, with over 1.8 million procedures recorded globally in 2018. I wonder what that would be now. Yeah. I don't have the statistics. Is it going up? <laughs> the number of breast ca- uh, uh, operations, for sure. Uh, it's just become, uh, particularly in the last five years, uh, the pardon the pun, but the uh, increase in uh, num- breast implant numbers has just gone up dramatically. Uh, and there's a number of reasons for that. It's a lot to do with, I think, podcasts like yourselves and other social media outlets where uh, women have become more aware of their options um, and it's become something much more mainstream, whereas maybe 10, 20 years ago, it was maybe something that people didn't know as much about. So with that has become an increased interest in it. See, I was going to ask because back in the day, I feel like you used to notice them all the time. And I feel like now it's either the surgeries are getting way better or they're just not happening as often. Uh, I think that's true that um, people's image of what a breast augmentation was, say 10, 15, 20 years ago, was that the Pamela Anderson, the super, super fake looking where um, it was super obvious uh, that that's what they'd had done. It was over the top. Whereas um, a lot of our patients these days are just normal normal women um, and either in their 20s that have never developed the breasts that they uh, desired or um, the other sort of cohort of patients tends to be women that have completed having their family and they're often through breastfeeding Um, their breasts have sort of disappeared away a little bit and most of them come in saying um, I want to look natural I don't want to look fake I don't want people to really know what I've had done so um, it it is a a different sort of frame shift of attitude and and also just awareness as well that it's it's not just for the for the elite and the rich and the famous that um, breast augmentation is accessible for any or most women that um, have concerns about their breast size. But Ella, I think it's also what you touched on that uh, our patients are now much more commonly requesting a very natural, did she, didn't she look? And that's a very, very common request that they don't want, they want to be as big as they can be, but still uh, have people asking the question whether they've actually had breast implants or more, more accurately, that they still look natural. Yeah, we were going to ask you as well to explain your beach analogy. <laughs> we had fun listening to your podcast all of Friday. <laughs> yeah, okay. I think the one you're referring to is that you, you, you would go to the beach and maybe see a whole lot of people and the only people who stand out to you are the people who've had bad breast implants or who have had bad filler. And so you think, oh, all plastic surgery or all injectables are bad. 
Whereas you're just not noticing the ones who have had great surgery or subtle filler or subtle Botox. Uh, and and so, so uh, you've got the proportions wrong. You sort of think you see one person who's got really obvious fake breasts and you think, oh, that's your whole cohort and everyone's got bad breasts. Uh, whereas that might be just one out of 100 who uh, and the other 99 just have very subtle breast implants that look natural and you, you just don't know. Yeah, that's one of the main reasons we sort of, sort of started this podcast is because the industry itself got a bad name from the people that might have like overdone it or didn't have the best work, but there is a really beautiful place for this subtlety and what it can do for a woman or man's confidence is just like unbelievable. So there's definitely, we wanted to open that conversation and really start start to break down that stigma. Although it has gotten a lot better in recent years, it's still nowhere near where it should be. That's a, um, yeah, a great attitude. And, and the more that people are talking about these things is we believe it, it's not encouraging someone to have surgery that they don't need, but it's, um, opening up the conversation to allow patients to know more about what's available and what's out there. And it's not just about breast augmentation. If we're just talking about breast, um, breast lift and breast reduction as well. And um, I, we see a lot of women that have very, very large breasts as well. And um, even girls in their late teens and their early twenties and really knowing and having the information out there through podcasts and for online forums and things like that that oh I can actually do something about this at any age if I want to and be able to source information and then be able to weigh out the pros and cons of whether to have surgery or not um, is, is, is a great approach. Yeah Kim, Kim's I think made that point in another in one of our other podcasts and I think it's a very good point uh, where our breast reduction patients and our breast implant patients, they kind of want to meet in the middle. They, they want the same shape at the end of the day. So the women with smaller breasts, they want to have a nice cleavage. They want to have a braless, braless look. They don't want any breast tissue on their chest wall. And the girls having the breast reductions are, are the same. They, they want to end up with almost like a very subtle breast implant look um, as well as all, obviously all the other benefits that go along with having a breast reduction. So for our listeners out there, if um, you haven't caught on already, today we are going to be talking tits. So we're excited to have a couple of fellow podcasters with us today, Dr. Bloom and Dr. Taylor, who run the podcast Keeping It Real, which talks about plastic surgery specifically and goes into detail about recovery and lots of other topics. So we'll leave the link in the show notes. Go and chuck them a follow and a subscribe. While you're at it, subscribe to Cosmogics too. So before we get into things, how's everything going in Melbourne? Yeah, with COVID. With COVID and lockdown and how have you guys adapted? Um, it's pretty quiet here at the moment. So um, certainly there's significant uh, curfews and restrictions on what you can leave the house for. Um, we have our rooms are still open at the moment and we are seeing our post-op patients so we were operating up until about three weeks ago before this most recent lockdown um, we're still seeing plenty of new patients uh, on video um, tally zoom links um, which we've had set up for um, quite some time and we our patients find and we find that it's um, really it's almost as good as having um, someone there in the office so um, we run through the same sort of history taking um, medical type consultation um, our patients then have already pre-uploaded their photos to a specific app that we have and so then we screen share their photos so at least they don't have to strip off in front of the video camera <laughs> in front of the computer screen and um, but then we can um, run through their photos draw on those and the patients then can access and have a look at everything that we've um, discussed and planned and then still talk through a full surgery plan. That's great. Well, at least people can still plan for their ultimate boobs when they, for when COVID ends. Absolutely. So with the types of surgery that you offer, to be honest, I only ever knew about boob jobs. Um, what other procedures do you offer as well? And is 
breast augmentation the name for the umbrella of these procedures? I don't know if that's a dumb question or is it specifically just boob jobs? Uh, let me let me sort of try and uh, un, un, unwrap all of that, Caitlin. So I think boob job just replies to any operation on the breast, okay? So in broad terms, you can either um, want to have your breast made smaller or breast made bigger. Uh, now, <clears throat> there are then sort of variations within, within that. So for the women who have a normal shape breast and, and want to be bigger, that, that's just a straight breast implant. For anyone having a reduction, there is pretty much always a, there's, I mean, there's always a component of a lift in the reduction. So where someone with large breasts always has a degree of droopiness. So we're always lifting that position of that nipple when we're reducing the breast. And then there are some women who are sort of a, a little bit in both where they're maybe a bit deflated and they're droopy and they need a lift and an implant. Uh, and then there's another group who have enough breast tissue don't really want to reduce their size and they just want a lift. So if you break boob job down, I'd say there's breast reduction, breast lift, breast implant or breast augmentation, and then augmentation mastopexy. Now, uh, that's a whole breast augmentation mastopexy is a whole other chapter. Uh, and maybe, maybe I'll hand over to Kim and she can sort of go through what our approach to that generally is. Uh, thank you. And when Richard says um, augmentation mastopexy, mastopexy is the word for um, lift. So that's an implant and a lift, um, as, which can be done as one operation or two operations. So there's a lot of, um, I guess, discussion and some controversy of what's the best approach to um, achieving that. So this is for women that essentially have some droop of their breasts and want to be bigger. So generally our approach for those patients is actually to do this as a two-stage operation, um, which involves having a lift or a mastopexy as a first operation. And essentially the aim of that is then to lift that droopy breast so that it looks like a small breast that's in the right place um, because if you're trying to do that and then put an implant in all in one go the two operations are sort of working against each other so the lift is trying to tighten everything reduce the skin whereas an implant um, then is trying to stretch everything back up again so what we find is that if patients have those two procedures combined into one operation, then there's a very high rate of having to needing to have a revision. And there's also a much higher um, rate of complications from that. So if you're going to have wounds that don't heal and there's an implant in there, there's a, there's a greater risk of um, infection or the implant having to come out. So our approach is to do the lift first, let everything heal, let it all settle down, let the scars soften and mature and then essentially you're just needing to do a breast augmentation or a breast implant on someone that has now for one of a better word normal normal small breasts does that make sense yeah and with so sorry just to clarify augmentation is means implant. implant correct correct so if someone comes in and asks for a breast augmentation or wants a breast augmentation essentially they're talking about wanting to have an implant um, but so that that term doesn't cover all degree of breast operations whereas as Richard said before like if you said boob job that could kind of mean anything generally means going bigger but it can mean lift or making them smaller as well yeah and your practice specializes in boob jobs and tummies how many boob jobs do you think you've done between the two of you Oh, it would be uh, in the thousands, Caitlin. Uh, oh. We've been doing breast surgery, both of us, since we started. Uh, we both, when we started, we did some uh, reconstructive surgery after breast cancer. And then when we started RE, which is three years ago, 
we we wanted to have a practice that focused only on aesthetic breast and tummy surgeries. So it, that's all we do really now. So um, we're we're doing hundreds every year, and so you know over a career, it's it's in the thousands of cases that we've seen and done. And we thought we'd start by focusing. We'll touch on a few of the um, boob job few of the topics under the boob job umbrella, but we thought we'd start with implants. So what in your expert eyes makes a good um, enlargement or implant boob job? <laughs> yeah, I think that's a great question. And I think it's, it, it's been impacted a lot by, by uh, social media and people sharing photos of the boobs that they like. So it's, it's I think what we've, what's evolved over the, with social media is a much clearer picture of what is an ideal breast and what is the breast shape. So by and large today, what a lot of the women want is uh, no breast tissue sitting on the chest wall, which means you can have a braless cleavage. So you, you don't not needing a bra to lift the breast up above your fold. It's a nice curve to the lower pole, which is the curve of the breast below the nipple. So uh, that's, you, you'll see people talking about under boob and things like that. That's what that refers to. And then it's a nipple that's sitting sort of just slightly above the most projecting part of the breast. So that's the part of the breast that sort of sticks out from the chest. So the nipple should be just slightly above that and just pointing slightly uh, upwards, maybe 10, 15 degrees. And then it's a nice gentle slope from the nipple up to the collarbone. So just a nice slope, no big bump or fullness there. And then the, the other two things that uh, we often get asked about is cleavage. So that's on the inside part. So a lot of women want a nice tight cleavage, um, not as tight as what you can sometimes see in clothes because some of that's with tape and other uh, things, push-up bras. Push up bras. Um, and then the last thing would be side boobs. So these are all terms that you know we've become familiar with from you know watching people on social media and people talking about it. Um, but yeah, under boob, side boob, cleavage, these sorts of things. These are terms that have have come from the patients who are having them and them talking about it and really creating a, their own language uh, that we then interpret as surgeons and work out how we then create that. And when you talk about a braless look. I just wanted to ask your opinion. Do you think it's bad to not wear a bra, like not give yourself that support? Is this after you've had a boob job? Or? Oh no, just in general, because yeah. I don't personally. I don't really wear a bra too often. Okay, okay. I told it's not good. Just it's not good for your boobs in the long run. No, that's that's an urban myth. I think so. Um, yeah. So busted. <laughs> it's totally fine to go without a bra. Um, and the thing is, the women that have very, very large breasts that have a lot of weight in their breasts, even young girls that I see in their early 20s that say they've worn a bra almost 24-7 since they developed, they still have some droop. So it's purely related to this, the size of the breasts. And so it's, it's certainly not harmful for anyone to go without a bra, and particularly in these isolation and COVID times like it's been very very common and we've seen lots of memes actually about um uh people that are you know that that's the first thing to go the bra at home all day go without no problem free the titty <laughs> save the city <laughs> and one thing that came to me when you were sort of talking about what's in at the moment I know that I don't know why I'm holding my hands there while I say this but there used to be that gap here and you could always tell the boob job because there was like they didn't meet in the middle. Is that something that the trends changed or you, the surgeons have just gotten more competent at like <laughs> making them look natural? Ella, it's it's a bit of a combination. So uh, what you're talking about is, is the breast implant sliding out to the side. Uh, and I think that was more common uh, with, I think it is more common with smooth implants. So uh, some surgeons still do like smooth implants, but that is more common, I think, with those implants. And also uh, 
So it can also be impacted by the pocket that we create. So uh, with the dual plane, we can design the pocket so that it, it helps to hold the implant in that position where you get that medial cleavage that you were talking about, Ella. And also the, the, the top part of the breast is to not have that fake round appearance, again, that people would associate with uh, for not wanting to name too many names, but Tori Spelling and Victoria Beckham from years ago. Um, by putting the implant under the muscle, that dual plane, that it, um, it gives a nice takeoff at the top of the breast and it's smoothed out rather than having the ridge that you see at the top of the implant. And just by the way, Kim, in, in no way is implying that either of those people have had uh, plastic surgery. Uh, but if you listen to our latest podcast, we do we are talk, we do talk about uh, celebrity plastic surgery. So a um, bit more on that on our podcast. And how do you choose? How do you choose the or the customer choose? Sorry, how does the patient choose the shape or material um, that they want for their breast implants? We are here to provide guidance with that and obviously we're the experts and know uh, from taking a history from a patient of what outcomes that they want. So we prefer for patients not to sort of come in the door and say, I want high profile round, you know, 350 implant. Um, what I prefer to do um, is that we say, like, what is the outcome? What do you want to look like? What sort of um, appearance would you like to achieve? And then what we do is base the measurements of the patient's chest, so the width and the height of their chest, so everyone has different dimensions of that. So we're here to guide um, through that process and um, and then it's a combined decision in terms of exact volume of the implant that can be then extrapolated from those other measurements. The other thing we do have in our rooms is a um, 3D camera. So it's called a Vectra machine. And so we uh, take the patients in there and they get the immediate 3D photo of themselves and every single implant is in the computer. And so we can um, choose a selection of implants and actually put them into that patient virtually on the computer and give them a pretty good idea of what the outcome is going to be. We spoke with a, a patient, Georgie Rafferty, in one of our podcasts, and she said the surgeon she went to also had a 3D imaging system, and that was the point where she was like, I want to have the surgery because she could see the difference it was going to make actually physically on her body. So, yeah. yeah it's, it's, a, it's a real game changer having that. And we've had one for oh, probably over five years um, and it's really helpful for patients because it, it's they're not looking at someone else's image they're looking at themselves in 3d with different size implants and it can really um, help guide their decision making as as to what kind of outcome they're going to achieve and so for a starting point of somebody who's thinking about having um, a boob job what should they be implants looking oh, oh implants i guess covers everything though right um, what should they be looking for in a surgeon? So the first thing uh, is to make sure that they're a surgeon. So if you go to the medical board, uh, their website, the APRA website, you should be able to look up your surgeon and see what their uh, registration ha has them listed as, which is an indication of what their training is. So we would be classified as plastic surgeons, uh, which means that we've done uh, all of the training uh, and pass the examinations uh, to be qualified as a surgeon. So that would be the, the first thing to check. The next thing would be to find a surgeon who it, it does a lot of the type of surgery that you want. So if it's breast augmentation, then you want to go to someone who does a lot of breast augmentation. I think in years gone by, there was sort of inferred experience. So if you're a trauma surgeon at a major hospital uh, and then people, patients would go and see them because, well, if they were good at trauma, then they should be good at uh, breast augmentation. But that was one of the reasons we wanted to focus on that type of surgery here at Re, because it's not the case. The, you become an expert in the actual operations that you're doing. The other thing, and this has been the big game changer in the last five years is 
there is a really great opportunity to get to know your surgeon uh, and their work through uh, their website, social media, uh, videos, YouTube, now podcasts, correct? <laughs> Uh, forums, review sites, Google, all those sorts of channels where people people used to talk about doing research and there wasn't any, actually any way to do research, whereas people now, women now, can actually really get to understand who their surgeon is, what their approach is, speak to other patients. So we have a lot of patients through our Facebook group uh, and also through Instagram contacting pre they might see someone's post they direct message them they ask them exactly what they had done they ask them how we looked after them they ask them ask them all about the process because uh, at the heart of what we would where we've set up here is not just to be at, have uh, an outstanding surgical service but also to create a great experience for women when they come in so that they feel like they're being uh, so that they are, are being treated um, you know, like something very special and not only just getting a great surgical outcome. And lastly, I'd say to um, like the surgeon that you've chosen. So even with all those things and you meet them and then you might be like, oh, okay, I don't feel quite right. So it's got to feel right. Um, you're going on a journey together. It's not just a, a you know, a simple transaction. There's, there's the surgery, but there's a lot of post-operative care as well. So um, you want to feel comfortable both with the surgeon and their staff that if you're going to be ringing up or coming back into the, the rooms or the office that you know that you're um, in the best hands and that you even if things don't go perfectly well, that you're going to be well looked after. Um, and also to look at your surgeon's uh, before and after photos. So you'll see on uh, Instagram, sometimes there's a lot of glamorised shots which aren't necessarily representative of what the actual outcome would be. So I mean, both of us have a very massive library of before and after photos, and it would be very, very rare that I, either of us couldn't find someone who has a similar body type and then has achieved a similar outcome to what you're trying to achieve. So if you've got really droopy breasts and you need a lift and implants and the surgeon shows you a 21-year-old who's a straightforward breast augmentation, that's not representative of what you can expect that you're going to get from your outcome. So your surgeon, we and we hear all sorts of excuses when patients come to us having seen other surgeons that they couldn't show them photos because for privacy reasons and all. We, we get approval from all of our patients. Our patients want to share their photos because they want to help other people. So... If someone's not showing you their photos, um, you, you, that's a bit of a red flag. You should be a bit nervous for that. You, you talked about how the patient sort of goes on a journey with the doctor. Can you explain sort of the process from start to be, start to finish? Uh, sure, absolutely. So um, the first step would be having an initial consultation. And both Rich and I, for initial consultations with patients, we see the patient's ourselves. So there are many practices where you don't actually meet the doctor or the surgeon at your first appointment. Um, but for us, we feel that, you know, you're, you're choosing us to have surgery with. So we're the ones that you would see um, separately, um, whoever you choose to have your consultation with. And so generally a first consultation would be around an hour. Um, and we really go through a medical history and make sure that you're someone that's um, safe to have, to offer surgery to and that you're coming in um, with the right mindset and um, that we can you know, achieve the things that you are after. Um, always recommend to patients if they've got photos of wish pics or um, questions to have all those with them and have them written down. And then um, we perform an examination, do photos in the 3D uh, imaging if appropriate at that time. And then... Um, if everything's like A-OK -okay and patient wants to book surgery, then that's then scheduled and planned. Uh, but if they've got other questions or they want to bring in non-COVID times um, a loved one to go over anything else again, then they, they can come for more than one consultation pre-surgery. Um, and then on the surgery day, we always see you uh, before you've had any drugs and wide awake and 
um, do some drawings and marking on you. And then depending on what the surgery is, whether you stay in hospital overnight and we review you before you go home. And then follow-up is usually for around four months. Um, first appointments are usually at one week and then two weeks and then that's spaced out afterwards um, all going well. Um, other things we spend a lot of time going through are um, scar management. So we include um, a lot of tapes and silicon and um, uh, also some laser to scars at the two and the three month mark. Um, and the one thing that I missed out in the pre as well is that um, before, about two weeks before your surgery, you come in and have an appointment with our nurse as well to run through other questions, um, get measured up for garments. And we have uh, what we call our re-care package. Um, so patients are then um, given a lot of information regarding their, their scar management, as we talked about, but also um, some dietary plan, a pre-op drink, um, some post-op workouts, um, things that you can and can't do after your surgery. Um, anything that I've forgotten from that? <laughs> Those are the main things. That was very in-depth. Thanks for that. And what should somebody expect the recovery period to be like? Yeah, that's a really good question uh, because, you know, people have different concepts of what recovery means and what, what recovery means for one person is sort of different. So I sort of break it up into the immediate post-operative period, you know, so the first few days are definitely uncomfortable. They shouldn't be unbearable. We give you plenty of pain meds to help you through that period. As Kim mentioned before, you may be a day case or stay in hospital one or two nights, depending on what surgery you're having done. Then once you go home, you will be able to be self-caring. You need a little bit of help, particularly if you've got young kids, but you're self-caring, you're showering, you can you can walk up and down stairs, you could go for a gentle walk if you feel comfortable. Um, you're still feeling a little bit sore at this point. So there are some limitations, you probably still can't drive, you can't do vigorous exercise where you're gonna be sweating and running and jumping too much. Uh, and there's a lot of bruising and swelling. Now, in terms of the wound itself, usually by a week or two weeks, everything is completely healed. So there's no wound healing generally going on beyond that point of view and, the, and, and we use taping to help with scarring, but not really as a dressing. And then from two to say six weeks, it's just a slow progression back to normal. So every day, every week, you'll uh, be able to do more and more, more exercise, more activity, more things around the house, maybe get back to work, depending on the sort of work you do. Definitely would start driving for most procedures uh, at, at that point. And then by six weeks, you should be able to go back to getting into um, more vigorous exercise. Uh, but we still sit, note, well, we hear from patients and we see this variation in swelling, which can last for many months, even a year, where some days they'll wake up and they're more swollen. There's no rhyme or reason really behind it. It affects, seems to affect some people more than others. Uh, and uh, that, but that just over time, it can be impacted a little bit on how active you are. So if you have a particularly active day, then you might get more swollen that night and then it just settles down again. So there is that fluctuation, which can really go on for a year or so as all of the blood vessels and lymphatics and everything are reconnecting and it's, it's um, all getting back to normal. So, so in terms of, you know, recovery, it's a long winded answer, but you know, you can, you know, depends on which part you're sort of looking at. So, you know, in terms of feeling back to normal, probably, uh, you know, somewhere between two to six weeks, but there is this ongoing period of things improving even for six or 12 months. Yeah. And would you recommend somebody who hasn't had kids yet to have implants? If they are thinking about having kids, sorry. Uh Always, um, always have the discussion when we see um, new patients regarding whether they've had children, whether they're planning on having children. Um, I, if someone is uh, young and is considering having kids in the future, then sure, it is it, absolutely fine to have breast implants or breast augmentation. It's not something I'm going to say, I'm going to recommend that you 
should have this, but there's there's no great minuses of having implants prior to having children. The implant's not going to impact on their ability to breastfeed. There's certainly no risk in terms of silicon or any of those sort of myths that silicon from the implant will get into breast milk. However, what can change is that breasts do change with pregnancy and breastfeeding, and they will change regardless of the fact of whether someone has implants or not. So it is something to to consider that if they breasts do get very large or very droopy, then um, the implant generally stays how it is and is fine. And But sometimes the breast would then, if it was particularly droopy, uh, may need to have a lift afterwards. And that would potentially be the case whether that patient had an implant or not. I think unless you're imminently getting pregnant, you know, actively trying to get pregnant, a pregnancy is sort of sometime off into the future. I think... I think it's fine to proceed um, because you just don't know what that timeline is. So, you know, it may it may be uh, a year away, maybe two years, and maybe five years. It may it may never happen. Uh, I had a patient this week who said oh, she's still thinking of having a child, maybe in the next year, and she was asking about breast augmentation. I just said, absolutely no. Like when you've made a decision that you're not having children anymore or that you're not actively trying, well, then we can talk about breast implants. But if you're actually considering it now, then, you know, I think you should de- delay it for all the reasons Kim just talked about. Perfect. And lastly, before we move on to another topic, what are the risks associated with um, implants? Uh, do you, <laughs> that's, that's a very big question. I guess the way to break that the answer to that down is um, short and long-term risks. The risks with surgery is, and that's part of our assessment of patients, so it's related to other medical um, issues and medical complications. So generally, uh, all of our patients are young and healthy and fit, and so the risk of the anaesthetic in particular, which is is often what patients um, tend to be more worried about than the surgery itself. Um, but the risk from the anaesthetic is extraordinarily low. And the commonest things that can go wrong from that is having a bit of a sore throat, feeling a little bit sick afterwards, maybe having some bruising from the, from the drip. But generally anything more significant than that going on is extremely uncommon. There will be a scar. There's always scars. And I had a discussion with a patient the other day who was trying to tell me that no matter what operation we did, that the scar will disappear as time goes on. And that is 100% not the case. Scars will fade as time goes on, but they don't ever, um, you can't remove a scar. So they, they become less obvious as time goes on. So you have to be willing to accept having a scar. And for breast augmentation, it's small, it's in the fold, and it's, it, it's not a significant scar that's really readily seen but it is there is something there and then the other things in the short term is because it's surgery bleeding and and or infection so again those things we proactively do the surgery very carefully very cautiously to avoid um, any of those things but again it's it's a small chance and that's what we're here for that if there's a problem that um, we can deal with it um, and then so more longer term, I say to all of my patients that, that are having breast augmentation that there's a 100% chance that you will need an operation on your breast at some stage in the future. And what that would entail is either removing the implant, removing um, and replacing them, having a breast lift, uh, having any sort of combination of those. There's, it's very unlikely that the breast implants will outlive any of our patients. Um, but it is a myth that at 10 years after having the operation that they have to be replaced. So if everything's going well and is fine, then um, certainly don't need to have a routine replacement. It's not like you know, your car having to get serviced every so many years. But being aware of your breasts and if anything changes, then it needs to be checked out. I hope that was... Uh, <laughs> I hope there was enough. No, that was great. Thank you, Dr. Taylor. We're certainly busting a lot of myths today. Uh, we, we wanted to ask you, so we recently did an interview on the Brazilian butt lift where they do uh, they transfer the fat um, to make the bum look bigger. I think it's called fat grafting. Is that is that right? <laughs> is it possible to do that for breasts? Uh, that's that's a really good question. We get asked that all the time. So my 
you can put fat into a breast, but you can't, it's not a replacement for or an alternative to a breast implant because the fat itself doesn't have any uh, shape. It doesn't have any form. So one of the issue or one of the aims for this type of surgery that women want is to actually improve their shape. So just injecting fat into a breast doesn't infer any shape to the breast. The other problem is uh, the how much fat will actually take when you inject it into a breast. So uh, the analogy that I try and make, and obviously we're on a podcast, so I can't draw anything or there's no visuals, but if you imagine a sponge, a little, a, a little sponge that you use in the kitchen, so a very small sponge, and imagine a sponge that you would use to clean a car, so a big, thick, heavy sponge, um, and you run water onto both of the sponges and they're both sitting there and they're soaked with water and then squeeze the small sponge and how much water would come out into a bowl and then get a separate bowl and squeeze the biggest sponge uh, and how much water would come out of that. And that gives you a sort of a little bit of an analogy of how much fat is going to survive. So when you've got a small breast, there's only so much fat that you can put into it that is actually going to survive because there's not enough blood supply to take a huge amount of fat. Whereas if you have a bigger breast, then there's more space and you can put more fat into it, but they're not the patients who want to have fat grafting to make their breasts bigger because their breasts are always are already bigger. The other issue, and, and people don't talk about this so much, is the women who have small breasts are often very slim. So you've got to take the fat from somewhere. So it's very different to those groups who are having the Brazilian butt lifts who maybe ha are, are, have other areas where they can take fat from. The women we see for breast augmentation, by and large, are quite slim. So they don't have anywhere where you can harvest a huge amount of fat, even if it possibly could work and give you a bigger breast and it, it all survive in your breast. So that then leads to donor site morbidity, which none of the advocates of fat grafting to the breast ever talk about but we see it and it's a very difficult problem and so what that means is they suck a whole lot of fat out from someone's uh, stomach or their inner thigh or uh, their flank area and it leaves divots and irregularities in the skin which are almost impossible to correct uh, and usually these people need multiple treatments. So it's just not an effective way to uh, enlarge a breast. We definitely use it. We use it in very slim patients using a small amount of fat graft, often in the medial cleavage area or to correct some asymmetries. We use it in sometimes in uh, breast lift patients to give a small amount of fullness, usually in the upper pole. We use it in breast asymmetry cases where you're just trying to put a little bit of extra volume in one small area of, of the breast. In those cases, it, it can work well, um, but as an alternative to breast augmentation, it just does not work. Um, the only positive thing I can say about it is that it at least doesn't have the horrendous death rate that I saw you discussed uh, in your podcast of one in, it's actually less than one in, or it's greater than one in 3,000 uh, of people who actually die. So it, it, at the very, the only positive thing to say about it is that at least one in 3,000 women don't die from it. And just one other comment on that is that sometimes clinics tell patients that are going to have the, that want to have fat grafting to their breasts, um, go and eat heaps of pizza and put on heaps of weight so that then we can use that, then we can use that fat to put into your breast. But generally, those patients are still then going to go back to their normal body weight, so the fat will reduce anyhow. So it's a very short-term um, plan, not a long-term one. That's interesting. So if you were to exercise, you'd lose the – can you lose that fat? Oh, How funny. Absolutely. Because it's just like fat on any other part of your body. So if you, if you put on a lot of weight – just intentionally to purely have the surgery and then you have the surgery and it's like oh well you know my breasts have got a bit bigger but the rest of me is still a bit bigger and I'm going to go back to my natural weight then the volume of that will disappear as well oh. another myth 
Busted. <laughs> Busting in left, right, and center. Yeah, I. So, what I sort of got from that is there is a space for it in like with working with implants to sort of improve that like natural cleavage look, but you wouldn't recommend doing it purely um, enlarging the breast with fat. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's used as an adjunct to breast augmentation, but it's not used as a substitute to breast augmentation. Fantastic. And could we touch on breast implant illness? I know that's been uh, rather popular sort of in the media and stuff lately, and it's quite interesting. I've, I've read stuff that says both that it could be a psychological thing or that it does exist. There's definitely cases for both. What's, what's your expert opinion on this? Uh, yeah, loaded, <laughs> difficult question to answer. But yeah, it's what, what is described as breast implant illness is often a whole lot of symptoms. There's a list, I think, of about 50 odd um, symptoms. And um, many of those kind of things are relatively vague, like tiredness and brittle fingernails and dry hair and a lot of things that can be put down to many, many other causes. There's certainly patients out there that believe that from the day they've had their breast implants put in that they don't feel right and they feel unwell with having them. So yeah, for sure, if, if you're one of those people, then um, by all means, you uh, get your implants out if you want them out. There's there's not a lot of scientific evidence behind the fact that a silicon breast implant can cause this or any of these specific sort of symptoms. But we don't, uh, you know, like if someone comes in and says, oh, this is what I feel like and I feel like they're, that my implants are causing that, like I'm not going to sit there and say, like, it's all in your head, you're crazy. What I do believe quite strongly, though, is that those people that are saying that it's the capsule around the implant that's the bad part and that every little part of that needs to be removed. I don't believe that that's something that is necessarily causing someone to be sick. So what a capsule around an implant is, is um, belief um, that it's your body's response to having a foreign body in it. And it forms a little scar around the outside of that. And that happens with any kind of foreign body. So if you've got a joint replacement um, or a pacemaker or anything else like that, that's been implanted into the, into the body and they um, have silicon parts of them as well. The, the body will form some degree of scar around that. So no one comes in and says, I've got a knee joint replacement illness um, because there's silicon in my knee joint replacement. So, but, and it's hard to then remove something like that because it's an, a necessary part of their body. We actually had a question in our Facebook group and it was someone who was thinking about having um, breast implants and she was getting a number of blood tests and stuff before just so that she could look out for any markers for breast implant illness and we said that we'd ask the experts about it but is there any use in having blood tests like is there anything you can look out for or no there's absolutely no there's no blood tests that you can do pre or post to test for that great good to know thank you so we've also had some questions from our listeners um, so we'll go right into that. Have you ever had an experience where something has gone wrong? I think uh, any surgeon who, who has operated for any period of time has always had things that uh, go, don't go to plan. Uh, by and large, though, it, it's, it's not, it's not uh, terribly common. And we talked earlier about training and what our training prepares us for is to deal with things that are unexpected in an operation. So uh, I can't think of a specific example, but you know, it, from time to time something will happen and you'll, you'll find something in an operation that you weren't expecting, maybe a hernia as part of a tummy tuck, or you might find a lump in a, in a breast when, that you're operating and you weren't expecting it. Our, our training allows us to deal with those sorts of things. So that's in the intraoperative phase I mean you know but sort of anything potentially can happen um so if you've listened to our podcast you've heard my experience where there was a, a bomb threat <laughs> in the middle of an operation I mean you know I mean you, you can't you just need to be prepared for everything and I know we talk about training a lot but even in that scenario you know our training uh and with working with anesthetists there was no panic there, there was everyone was calm 
we had a plan, we worked out what was safe for the patient, and then we just dealt with it. So you need to be kind of prepared for anything um, in the post-surgical period. You know, from time to time, we, we all have patients who have uh, infections or wound healing problem. It, it's probably in the vicinity of 1%, maybe up to 5%. And again, uh, you know, we, we've had extensive experience in, in uh, major hospitals dealing with um, trauma patients and uh, things like that. So we we know what to do in those scenarios. So it's not a matter that things like that can't happen. Uh, we do everything we can to avoid it, uh, and which includes operating on patients who, who are fit and healthy and prepared for surgery. But, you know, it's important that your surgeon knows how to deal with uh, those things when they arise. I love with the bomb threat story that the patient then waited and still continued to have the surgery after. <laughs> Yeah, we, um, we we woke her up and we explained what was going on. And she said, "Have you done my surgery?" And we told her no. She said, "I'm not going home, and I'm not going home until you've done it." So we took her literally across the road on a operating table uh, to a park until the hospital was declared safe. And then we, when it was declared safe by the police, we went back in and we did her breast implants. That's such a good story. And how young is too young for breast augmentation? Yeah, good question. That is a good question. So I think below 18, I I think, is not uh, an age we would uh, offer breast augmentation. Uh, in that sort of sort of maybe 18 to 21, it's, it's always good to have make sure that there's some parental support. Um, the, the medical guidelines uh, kind of make it quite difficult to do this sort of operation on anyone under 18 anyway. So thank you, Dr. Bloom and Dr. Taylor, for joining us today. And for our listeners who want to learn more, where can they find you? Yeah, uh, our website would be a great place to start. So replasticsurgery.com.au. We also have an Instagram page, replasticsurgery. Uh, also a Facebook page. Uh, and for those who are really interested in finding more, finding out more about the surgery and engaging with our community, please join our Re Girls Facebook group. We also have our podcast, which you mentioned earlier, Keeping It Real. And we've got a Re Plastic Surgery YouTube site. So we are the most published plastic surgery practice on the face of the planet. So no excuses not to find out about us. And we'll leave all the links to that in our show notes so you can just yeah, go to that. Okay, thank you. Please be advised that we are not medical practitioners and that some guests may have differing perspectives from ourselves and what our brand stands for. You should always consult your medical practitioner with regards to cosmetic products and procedures and whether they are suitable for you individually, as we will not be held liable for any misinformation. Thank you.